You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to this uh, JNNP podcast. My name's Alan Carson. It's been a great pleasure today to introduce the keynote speaker of the British Neuropsychiatry Association's AGM, Professor Neil Greenberg. Um, it's also been a great pleasure for the JNNP to sponsor this talk. Neil is an academic psychiatrist who's currently based at King's College London and is consultant in occupational forensic psychiatry. Perhaps somewhat unusual in psychiatry, he's actually served in the armed forces for more than 23 years and been deployed as a psychiatrist and a researcher in a number of hostile environments. And he's going to speak today on uh, stress and war and the, the limits of neuropsychiatry. And perhaps it would be helpful just to start and give us a brief synopsis of what uh, your lecture is going to cover. Well, Basically, what I hope to cover today is trying to try and give a reasonably broad overview of, of what we know about mental health of military personnel in the UK, uh, and also um, why, in my view, as I will argue, that actually we understand quite a lot about uh, mental health issues from what we already know, and that the neuropsychiatric uh, elements to um, to mental health in the military are, are actually reasonably small. So I'll talk, for instance, about the fact that um, aspects like leadership and cohesion make a really big impact upon mental health and that, perhaps unsurprisingly, people who are in very frontline roles are more likely to have um, mental health problems because, obviously, they're exposed to more unpleasant stimuli. And that, actually, we already understand quite a lot about what uh, goes on in military mental health issues and, and that's going to be the, the main thrust of my talk. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, as soon as military mental health comes up, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder springs to mind. But that, that's really probably not the story, is it? No, it's, it's interesting you ask that because on one of my first slides and saying what I'm going to talk about is one of the um, bits I will talk about is debunking the fact that you should use the word military and PTSD in the same sentence at all times. Um, in fact, more commonly in the military, um, adjustment issues, depression and alcohol misuse uh, are far more common mental health problems than, than PTSD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of, of course most of us um, tend to think back to shell shock and, and things whenever we hear of a military and, and, and psychiatry in the same sentence. I suppose as, as somebody who read about it when it was in doctorate, one of the, the things that shocked me most actually was I thought how remarkably good, contrary to what one reads, the military response to shell shock was. It seemed relatively sophisticated to go from an unknown condition presenting with multiple symptoms to a full description of the psychopathology in two years. And then contrary to what I'd ever heard in popular myth, people were being taken from theatre and actually into active neuro rehab and psychologically driven rehabilitation within 24 to 48 hours, which, which, which fascinated me. But what... We don't seem to see in current conflicts to such an extent is these old, really quite dramatic motor presentations of functional motor disorders and things. Is that something I can, as an in, somebody who has an interest in that field, draw you out on a bit to hypothesise as to why? Well, I, I think it is really interesting. And I think much of it is to do with what, what the function of being ill is. Um, and certainly in the terms of the First World War, if you decided that you weren't going to fight because you didn't want to, then you, you actually risked being shot. Um, whereas, you know, I'm very glad to say that today, um, whether you're a coward or not, um, then uh, being shot is, is not on the list of options. Um, so I think the more dramatic presentations have, have to some degree disappeared, but they haven't gone by any means. And um, in the current conflict, there's a term called mild traumatic brain injury, which um, has been described in US circles as the signature injury of the current conflicts. 
when you look at um, this condition and it resembles in many ways what shell shock was in the First World War, you find that when you look and see whether there's a uh, association between very firm known mental health problems like PTSD and uh, depression, you find that that almost explains the whole prevalence of MTBI symptoms. So actually, whilst things have changed a bit, actually the story generally remains the same, that that physical health symptoms are a a way of expressing um, your mental health um, concerns, um, be it actively by trying not to go to war or just by effectively sort of saying you're frightened and, and you've been affected. Yeah, I mean that is an area of particular interest to me as, as somebody who runs a brain injury unit and uh, one of the earlier speakers today was showing some very elegant work on um, the effects of post-traumatic stress in a structural sense, particularly in sort of mid-brain structures and, and the neuropsychological correlates of that in terms of attention processing and has the impression that's particularly important when considering a lot of the studies, particularly the um, diffusion tensor imaging studies coming up on mild traumatic brain injuries are being used to show, you know, it's an organic disorder, but uh, it can't be overemphasized that stress also causes <laughs> organic changes. And one, one has a feeling it's almost culturally driven to a certain extent. And yeah, and I think if you look back through history, the name for the physical condition changes with the with the conflict, but the presentation of psychological symptoms into physical manifestations remains pretty much constant. But actually, on, on the mild traumatic brain injury side and, and DTI scanning, as you're saying, and I, I'm not my area of expertise, but we've had plenty of um, people who have come to the military with great scanners that they want to use to try and you know show how war affects people's brains and actually the 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 best that we've seen to date and and not many of these studies have got through uk military ethics is that is that actually it 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 doesn't appear to make a a huge difference and actually one of the biggest predictors of outcome after conflict is what you were like before you went into it um which I, i think is a really key message the military takes a lot of people from disadvantaged backgrounds who, who otherwise may well have been on life trajectories of, of ending up in dire circumstances without jobs and, and maybe with social exclusion. And um, one of the areas that we're trying to focus on at King's using epidemiological data is trying to show, and I think it's true, we'll, we'll get there, that actually for many of these people, the military changes their trajectory in a positive way. Uh, not a negative one. I'm sure. I'm sure it does. And one of the things that hit me with a few patients I've seen, and my, my, my experience is very limited, but is that actually for a number of people, the, the, the stress was coming back and it being boring, not 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 as, as we we're sort of programmed to think of it being the stress and the horror of war, but actually it was quite an exciting life and being back in Civvy Street and getting the number 23 bus is, is pretty dull by comparison and that, that was the stress that a few of the people I've seen have struggled with. Now, is that an individual perspective or is that quite a common? No, it's very common but transitional challenges, you know, moving between any role in life, if you move from being a parent to being a parent, if you move from not being married to being married or if you, if you have a job and you retire and if you come back from a war zone to, you know, queuing in the queue at Tesco's, all those transitions are challenges uh, and I, I think you're right that whilst when you're deployed there is a a risk that you may be injured or severely uh, affected by what you see actually life's pretty simple Um, you get your food cooked for you you have a group of people around and actually your tasks are pretty clear coming back home um, to the normal complexities of life can be really quite challenging 
on a personal note, I, 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 when I was in Iraq in 2007, and I was only there for a short period of time, it, it was a time when the British military forces in Basra were being rocketed seven or eight times a day. And when the rockets come in, there's a, an indirect fire alarm that tells you the indirect fire is about to come in. And so when you hear that, it puts you on edge, as it's meant to do. Um, you mentioned buses. When I got the bus down to King's, uh, when I came back, the number 76 bus, or 176 bus, um, the stop button on that is almost directly the same as the indirect fire alarm. So I pressed the button, having done it many times before, and then jumped out of my skin when I heard that noise. Now, luckily, as a psychiatrist, I knew what it was. But I did think that many of the junior personnel who didn't know what it was would think, what's going wrong with me? Yeah, 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 yeah. fascinating area. And what, what about treatment? Because ultimately the aim of this, obviously, is to improve the health of the military. To what, what, to what extent do treatments need to be modified to take care of a military context or, or not? Uh, it's a really good question to which currently we don't have a fabulous answer. Um, what we do know, though, is that the military makes really good use, particularly for PTSD, and we agree it's not all about PTSD, but they make a lot of use of EMDR, which is a rather bizarre therapy when you look at on the face of it and actually many military personnel who are pretty sceptical about psychological stuff come in and there's someone sort of wiggling their fingers in front of their eyes but actually we have a good success rate and the one study we have done looking at people who come to military departments of community mental health find that after six months nearly two-thirds of people are back to full duty which I think is, is pretty good when you think that military duty is pretty tough at times. And will that include further and future combat exposure in, 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 in theatre? Yeah, the military uses um, they're called medical employment limitation standards, and so if you're fully fit, you, you there are no restrictions. You can go and do anything. Um, so yeah, it would include future, future combat. Look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for giving your lecture. Fascinating. I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you very it. much. Hope it goes well. <laughs>